Are you drum rolling for your uh, own more just drumming intro? Uh, idly drumming because I'm not good at not doing things with my hands. Boo doo boop doo doo. Tweedly dee dee dee. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Carey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? I am back in Boston, which is wonderful. Uh, it's been a great week with the team that I'm working on. And also ThoughtBot has been finding lots of fun ways for us to stay in touch with each other while working remotely. So there's been an uptick in like the number of like social calls that I'm doing with folks over like Hangouts and Zoom. And that's been a lot of fun for me. Have you had much success in staying connected with people using those types of tools? Oh, yeah. I think in the past, like in any given week period, I'm probably using five different video conferencing softwares. And they each have their quirks and things, but it's been really nice staying connected. And there's an interesting thing where basically everyone's in the same boat of we're all sort of stuck in a place and looking to have that connection. So everyone's like, hey, do you want to let's play a board game over the Internet? Let's watch a video together. Let's do this other thing. Let's just have cocktails. And, and so there's been a lot of that going on. In addition to the teams that I'm working with, there's been remote pairing and things. I finally tried out Tuple. So that, that was a plus for me. It was a very pleasant experience. I was today earlier this morning and uh, yeah, it, went, it went well. So um, that's maybe even a sixth version of the video conferencing software I tried. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I very much have enjoyed using Tuple. I find that I'm at the place now where for a while I didn't have enough remote pairing options and it was very limited to just screen sharing or something by using Slack or Hangouts. And now when someone's like, hey, let's pair, I'm like, great. How should we pair? We have Tuple and we also have Use Together and we have this other tool and we can also just do screen sharing through Slack or Ring Central or through Zoom. And, and I'm like, oh, we've actually crossed a line where I feel like we have lots of options for how we want to pair with each other each other, which is great. It's just, I didn't see that coming so soon because for a while I felt the pain of where I didn't have enough tools. So speaking of pairing and working uh, with other developers, I was working with one of the developers on my client team and they were chasing down a, a pretty interesting bug and understanding what was going on. So they were troubleshooting for why a particular record was being updated, but then an outdated incorrect version of that record was then being broadcasted to another service. And it turns out that a race condition was the culprit. So specifically, when a user was viewing the record and they pressed a button that updated the record in a particular way, there's also an autosave feature that's running, let's say, like every 15 seconds, every 30 seconds. So if a user happened to trigger an action at the same time that that autosave was also triggering a save on the record, then a race began between who would update and who would broadcast that record first. So... To kind of mimic the idea of like a horse race, because for some reason, that's how I think about this <laughs> in this particular world. So you've got like the first request that's like rounding around the corner. And then the second request is like hot on its heels. And then the first request loads that record. The second request also loads that record. And the first request then saves the changes. And then the second request is unaware of the changes and then broadcast the outdated record is what we are running into. So to address the issue, Rails has a lovely uh, with lock method. 
And Withlock helped us out in this particular case because it wraps the work that's being done. Specifically, you can pass it a block. So it wraps the work in that block in a transaction. It's going to lock that object before yielding. So then it's also going to reload that record to make sure that you're working with the freshest data from the database. And then you can perform work and then it will yield the result. So if there's any other thread, if there's any other work that's being done on that record, it now has to wait until that lock is released. So for us, that worked well. So if we have this raise condition happening where a user triggered a particular action and then also the autosave is coming in right behind it, that autosave is going to try to access the record. It's not going to be able to while that with lock is performing and updating some fields on that record. And then once the lock is released, the autosave is going to enter that particular request and it's going to be forced to reload from the database. So there is a performance hit or a it's not a performance concern at this point but there is a performance hit to take into mind the fact that we are now doing like two trips to the database every time that we're updating a record because we're going to come in first and load it once and then also force it to be reloaded a second time when we're using the with lock functionality uh that is that is a bunch of very interesting things i was not familiar with the rails mechanism that you're talking about so that's interesting to know that that exists although immediately my as you started to describe that my brain was like Tell me more about this autosave. That is interesting. What does that mean? Why are we autosaving? And why do we have multi- like a, almost a stream of events on the front end that is potentially introducing a race condition? And then the other thing that I thought about, just to list all of my thoughts real quick, there's a blog post I want to say that Derek Pryor wrote about uniqueness validations. I think unique constraints at the database and then also saying validates uniqueness of at the Rails level. And so Derek went through the like basically the race condition sequence. It's very similar to what you were describing of two different things are trying to create a record with the same email address. They both check the database. Everybody says it's good on the Rails side, but then they end up hitting the Postgres unique index and having an exception thrown and all of that. And so it was an interesting one. Derek's recommendation there was like, don't do the validates at the Rails level, just do it at the database, which is an interesting one because there are trade-offs there. But yeah, coming back to the autosave thing, tell me more about this autosave. I'm intrigued. Sure. Uh, So the autosave is in the context of this particular application has notes that someone can write down. So if someone is inside of the notes field and let's say they're adding notes, then that's when the autosave functionality is going to kick in. So every 15, I'm making up a number. I don't really remember the exact number, but let's say every 15 seconds is going to autosave whatever is in those notes. So then that way, if someone were to walk away from it, if they were to close it, if something happens, like they're not going to lose any of the information that they were putting into that field. Interesting. So the autosave is just basically running on like a set timeout loop of every 15 seconds, but it's going to save whatever's there every 15 seconds, no matter what. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So what's the other more explicit save or update action that's going on? So yeah, there's a little bit of nuance here. So when someone is looking at a note, they have the option to be able to sign a note, which is essentially like putting their stamp of approval of like, yes, this note has everything in it and I approve it and then sort of like ship it in that sense. uh, So that way we have the record of like who approved the note and who put their signature with it. So if the autosave happens to be autosaving the body of, because that's really what it's looking to save is the text that's in the note field. So if it happens to be sending a request that is sending off the body to be saved, but then someone also clicks the sign button at the same time or like within a couple milliseconds of each other, then that's where we hit the situation where both requests were hitting the update method at the same time. And they're both getting to the point that they're loading the record, but one request is just slightly beating out the other one to actually save it. But at that point, the other one 
one already has a reference to the outdated record and it doesn't know about it. We saw this not because we were able to replicate it exactly because race conditions are very hard to reproduce. Some of this just takes some intuition as to what we think is happening, but we were aware that it's truly happening and it's a bit of a bug because this other service is indexing the note in a way that it's going to appear in a list that it has been signed. But that service was getting the idea that this note was not signed because it had the outdated information instead of the actual saved updated information that it was signed. So that's how a user was able to report to us. They're like, I'm pretty sure this note is signed, but in fact, it actually looks like in this service, it's not. Okay, that makes sense then that there's this other discrete attribute that you're saving in addition to the like general autosave of the the text fields. I guess one other question about that autosave functionality, is that always firing off a request like posting even if the text has actually not changed so like once every 15 seconds is there a put probably or a patch or whatever sure uh i'm honestly not sure i do know it's only when someone's in the note that we're going to start that autosave logic but i don't know if it's actually checking to see if there's any difference in the notes that if something else has changed i think it's just taking what's there and then saving it every 15 seconds but that's just a guess i'd have to check the code to be sure Gotcha. I don't know if this is actually how it's implemented, but when I've done things like that in the past, rather than having it be just on a discrete loop that's going for any time that you're in that field, typically what I would do is something, I I forget if it's debounce or throttle. I can never remember which is which, which is like the lazy and later one or the earlier one. But the idea of any time there's an on change, so any change of that text field adds an event essentially to that little queue and then It just sort of snaps to every 15 seconds after changes have happened to do that. I think it's throttling is probably the one that we would want here. But that's the way I think of it. I don't know that that would actually solve anything with regard to the race condition, though. And so it's sort of an inherent reality to what you're working on. And so it's nice that you found the Rails slash database side of things to uh, wrap that up. And man, do I love transactions at the database level. I like when I can say something authoritatively about the truth in the world. Yeah, I think that's a wise idea in the sense of trying to reduce the number of autosave requests that are being sent and trying to only time it when there's actually a change to that field. And that may very much be what the application is currently doing, because that sounds like a really smart approach. And I also think you're right. I don't think it would help us in the sense of the autosave, because one thing that we notice is like it's very infrequent when this happens. So it kind of shows that this race conditions only happening like once out of like every couple of months, or at least we only get a user report every once every couple months. And if we run a query to sort of check if we have inconsistencies between our service, what it knows, versus what our database has, then it's very few records that are in that inconsistent state. So it's not happening very often. And I really have to give credit to the developer on the client project because they're the ones that really worked through this problem. But it's something that they and I had paired on for a bit. And then they were the ones that took it over the finish line. And then we had lots of great conversation on the pull request regarding like how transactions work versus how the locks work and when can a transaction carry on versus when is it going to be blocked by a lock. So it's one of those PRs where there's like literally one line that changed, but then we had like 20 comments of like people having interesting conversations around that particular change and how we're going to test it and why we think this is going to work and how are we going to know if it doesn't work. So that was a lot of fun. Those are in my mind, those the sort of things that ideally the framework just hides and Rails does a fantastic job and like the languages and the runtimes and things that we use do such a good job that most of the time I don't have to think about the really hard stuff. But every once in a while, the really hard stuff like race conditions do exist and we're going to be running multiple instances of our app server. And so fundamentally, that's a thing that we have to deal with. And yeah, sometimes you have to think really hard. And I, I do love that idea of like there's one line of code change and then a volley of comments about it or a giant commit message that describes like, okay, Everybody sit down, maybe grab a drink. We're going to tell you a story. 
hopefully I assume that there's a very lengthy commit message that's going along with that one line change. There is a nice commit message that goes with it because this isn't our first encounter with this bug. I feel like this we're maybe on like round three and this is now the latest conclusion of be like, we're pretty sure this is a race condition because we've addressed the other things we thought was happening. So this is our Hail Mary to see if this happens again. I think then we're really going to need to sit down with some coffee and some drinks and figure out what else to try next or better ways to debug it and go from there. So yeah, I, I am a little interested in wondering if we are going to run into any problems using the with lock because it's going to block other transactions or other requests from running. Right now, I can't think of any problems that are going to happen from it. But just in my cursory reading of other folks that have used like explicit locking, it can be a bit of a dangerous tool to use on your own because there are other like Postgres and Active Record, like they already do so much and trying to make very reasonable conclusions for us as to when to lock and when not to lock. So when you reach in and you're like, no, no, active record, I've got this, that feels a little dangerous to me, but it also feels like the right thing to try at this time. Yep, that totally makes sense. I will definitely have to read up on that method, uh, presumably when it's in the show notes of this episode, and I have a nice link to it. Makes things easy in the world. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix. It's so simple, just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Do you love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. It works with Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com slash bike shed, that's all one word, bike shed, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash bike shed. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. So that's, uh, that's pretty much been my week. What's going on in your world? been exploring some new things. We're working with Tailwind on one of the client projects, which is a CSS sort of functional or atomic or presentational classes CSS sort of adventure. Uh, I'm still new enough in that work that I think that'll be fun to talk about in a future week when I've spent a little bit more time with it. But thus far, just the like hot take. I love it. It's heretical. It's ridiculous. And it's awesome. So that's my initial summary on Tailwind. But to loop back to another thing that I provided a similar summary of previous weeks, uh, I think it's time we talked about Inertia JS. <laughs> oh, people can't see me, but I'm clapping because you can see me. <laughs> I can see. Uh, yeah, so I've been poking with it more and more. I've been reading about it a bunch. And the more time I spend with it, the more I'm intrigued. There are still some rough edges isn't quite the right word, but some aspects of it that I want to figure out how to make a little bit smoother. But overall, the sort of promise of it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so I figure I should give the like broad summary of what this thing is, and then we can talk about some of the details. So the idea is for the longest time we had Rails apps or Laravel, PHP, or basically anything that's generating HTML on the server side. 
And the wonderful aspect, the simplicity, I think, that came with that was the request response lifecycle. So every request comes in, it's completely fresh. You don't have to remember anything. You fetch whatever you need from the database, you render some HTML, and then you send that down to the browser, and you're done. There's nothing else going on now. The browser presents a very minimally stateful UI because like, I don't know, you can click on buttons or things or click a checkbox. So technically there's some state there, but it's very, very small. And the browser and rendering engines and things have gotten very good at that. And then say you submit a form, that's a new request and you're basically throwing out the world, repainting a new, so the controller action handles it, whatever. But every single request response is nicely simple in that we essentially throw away the world and rebuild it based on the current state of things. And that's great. Really enjoyed that. But... Historically, we've wanted fancier front ends. We wanted more app-like features. And so there are all the different frameworks. Personally, I've worked with jQuery, Backbone, Angular, Ember, React, a couple different versions of Angular in there, frankly. And each of these were attempts to make that more interactive, dynamic client side. But what I noticed in that, in the many years that I've been working with those different frameworks, is we're pushing more and more of the logic to the client side. And we're doing more state management on the client side. And so I think the most like extreme version of that is applications in the React world, or frankly, you can do it wherever, but things that are using Redux or a pattern like that. So you have this whole system for managing state on the client side, and you have this big, almost database on the client side that you're managing, but you also need to synchronize that state with the server. And so if someone clicks a button to add something to a list locally in your little mini database that you're storing on the client side, you have to put it into the list and get it in the right place, but also send it to the server and ideally not get those things out of sync and make sure as you transition pages that you're refetching data that might have gone out of sync. And my experience with that style of development, the more dynamic client side development, is it can provide a really nice interface, but it's incredibly hard and error prone. So all sorts of caching errors and just complexity in that development process that just wasn't present. And I think when we talk about, we sort of pine for the old days where we just rendered some HTML on the server. I think the real thing that we're missing, or that I'm missing at least, is that start fresh each time, rebuild the world fresh from the current state of things as the database, as the canonical source of truth has it. So that's that's sort of the foundation before starting to consider inertia. So there's you know the old style where I think we were throwing everything away and rebuilding fresh each time. And then there's the newer style where we've got more logic on the client side and more state management there. So with inertia, the idea is we want to still use these client side frameworks like React or Vue or Svelte are the three core supported ones at this point. But we don't want to opt into the entirety of building out an API of client side state management of handling view transitions. We don't want to give up on the idea of server-side routes. And so with inertia, basically what happens is anytime you make a request to get a page, you on the server side will do all your normal database things, and then you will instruct the front end to render a certain page level React component. There's nothing special about that component. It's just you say like render the home page with this data. And the home page is a React component that expects that relevant data and then will render itself properly. If you click a link to go to a different page, you will request all that data again. So it's basically restarting from the server fresh and the server will say like, oh, you want to go to the users list. Okay, this is the component to render and this is the data for that page. It does all of that over an Ajax request, assuming that inertia sort of picked it up, but it means that we're back in that world where we're rebuilding everything fresh. But we can still use React or Vue or Svelte or whichever framework we want to render the front end. So it means we're entirely in that world for the Vue portion. So this is basically at this point just replacing Rails Vue rendering. 
So that sounds intriguing. I, I guess my, my initial thought is where do we lose some of that like snappy front end experience, the whole reason for like using React and stuff. And it sounds like we can still certainly keep some of that because we're still going to have state management in a sense. So like say if you need to keep track of someone who is reordering a list might be a good example of where they're moving stuff around. So we're still going to need to have that state management. But if they navigate to a different page, we're guaranteeing that there was like a reload from the server. Yes, actually, specifically the one of reordering a list, I think is a really complicated one that I'm still trying to figure out because there's more like DOM level state manipulation there. I think it would just work, but you would need to do a little bit of managing. But I think an easier version is like adding something to a list. So imagine that you have a little form and there's a to-do list below it. And so you fill in the form and you hit enter. And in a Rails world, that would post to the server. You're hitting the slash to-dos. So you're posting to slash to-dos. And then after the successful creation of that object, which is now at the bottom of that list, Rails will redirect you to the index page. So there's actually like two request response that happen there. The one that you post and then Rails says, cool. 302, I think, go look over here, and then you make another request and you get the full index page. Inertia actually does almost all of that. So you do the same sort of post. It's a normal form that's still posting to the server. You have the same controller and routing logic in Rails. The only difference is that that redirect, that actually still happens. And then eventually you just re-render that index page. So if you were showing an index page, which has a form on it, when you submit that form, you post to the create endpoint, you get redirected to index. Index then renders down the special inertia response that says render the list with this data. But the whole time on the front end, your application, your like React app is still mounted. So what's really nifty is you can actually do an animated addition of that item to the list. So whereas Rails, you get a whole page reload. And so it's just like now you see the list, but with one extra item. This is, I think, the, the real like magic demo in my mind is that item can animate into the list because what ends up happening is you get the new data. React catches that and says, oh, cool. The world has changed slightly. Let me update the DOM as minimally as possible. Does all its virtual DOM diffing. And you get the new version of the page. And so you get the same thing. Like if you want to delete something off a list, it's still a form that's sending a delete request to an endpoint in the Rails app, but the Rails app can then redirect you back to that list. And so you can animate the deletion of an object. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's the part that I was looking for is when you're talking about, like, when I was curious about what experience we're going to lose from the fact that we're going back to the server each time. But from a user perspective, if we're just like updating that DOM in a minimal way, as you'd mentioned, then that way they still feel very much as like, it's still that sort of like snappy response, even though we're giving ourselves a little bit more concreteness and knowing that we are going back to the database and getting like a full refresh of that data. So that sounds that sounds really interesting. Are you currently using this to build like a fun project? How are you working with Inertia? Uh, yeah, I'm using this in a personal project that I have that's like my personal information manager. I have like a journal portion that I've built into it and some other things. And it's been my sort of toy application playground for a while. Uh, I ported it to React and GraphQL recently, and I've actually moved off of GraphQL for this, which, yeah, take of that what you will. Do you have to move off of GraphQL for this or you just made that choice? This is an interesting question. You don't have to, but there's nothing. So inherently with inertia, one of the ideas is like, we don't need an API anymore. We don't want an API because that's extra complexity. That's extra overhead. We have to deal with loading states and all of that kind of stuff. So with it, you wouldn't have a GraphQL API in the sense of like a, an endpoint that you hit to get data back in JSON format, et cetera. But 
the data fetching portion of it is like you basically just get data and then serialize it to JSON in the page response. And there's nothing that says you can't use GraphQL for that. And I've actually found that like a lot of these pages want a lot of data. And I've still left the GraphQL types and all of that and all the resolvers in the app that I'm working on. I've just taken out the endpoint for the actual API communication. And one of the things that I want to play with is reintroducing GraphQL as the way to fetch the data. So right now it's mostly just active record calls and manual creation of hashes in the controller. But I want to switch that over and say, like, what if this were still using GraphQL but without an API? I think you're blowing my mind a little bit. Um, working to understand the mechanics of the fact that we're using inertia. We are getting data back from a controller. It's not an API endpoint. It's not returning JSON. Is that true? There is JSON that essentially gets serialized into the initial page response. So when we do a full request for a page the first time, that's what we get. Inertia then for every subsequent request will do an XHR. And so it will come down with the data serialized as JSON in that response. But it's not you don't need to think of it as building out an API. So like this API would not support a mobile client, but it still has like the niceties and the behavior performance characteristics, I guess is the best way to say it. Interesting. Okay. All of that sounds like super nifty. I don't, I don't know how I feel about it yet. <laughs> I'm still trying to explore it and figure that out. I think coming back to, because I think you asked the most pertinent question of like, what are we losing of that client side experience? What are we giving up? And there definitely is a little bit that we're giving up in terms of immediate performance. So if you think of like a Redux managed application where saving the state back to the database is almost a side effect or a, a second order thing. And really, like imagine that we have a list of items. Those are all stored in Redux's in-memory cache, essentially, of all that data. And if we remove an item from a list, that happens instantly in that local data. And then as a side effect, we'll probably send a request to the backend that says, hey, by the way, this got removed, so please update that backend version of this. And so the interaction is immediate, instantaneous, you know, millisecond order sort of thing. And with inertia, we are still making a round trip to the database, or we're making a round trip to the back end and then to the database and all the way back. The performance, I think, can be very good because we don't need to send all of the stuff about the page. This is still an XHR with the minimal data necessary. But we're sending more data than we would otherwise because it's not just a REST API. It's, it's sending like, here's the entire state of the page to update to. It's still, I think, possible to get very good performance, like sub-second easily. And they do have actually built into it a little progress bar. So for anything that takes more than 250 milliseconds, the progress bar kicks in and just renders at the top of the screen to give a little bit of visual feedback. But imagine that like you've got a list of items and each one has a little X icon to delete it. Each of those deletes may take 250 milliseconds instead of happening in 10 milliseconds. So I think there's a way to work with the UI such that like you click that X button and it disables immediately. So there's immediate response, visual like response for the user, but then all the inertia stuff kicks in and eventually it vanishes from the list. But you do have to be a little bit purposeful with that. So I think that's the main thing that you're giving up. That's my sense. Yeah, I like how you just said that. I hadn't really thought about it in those exact terms. But when we're reaching for more of like that client side state management is that we're really prioritizing the user feedback first and letting them know that we understood what they wanted us to do and we're going to give them some sort of response. And then it's like, but don't look behind the curtain as we actually like do the thing that you asked us to do. And then we have mm -hmm. to handle like what if something went wrong and then hopefully everything goes well. So I kind of like how you phrased it earlier with saying like prioritizing that user feedback and then updating our one source of truth persisting it to the database is now like the side effect behavior, which becomes more difficult to manage. 
And so I do very much like the idea of that we're still actively always communicating with the database and getting back sort of like fresh information from there. I am curious. I just want to prod at this a little bit further from my own understanding. When you were saying the controller has to return all of like the information needed for the page, how does that look differently than like, say, if you're returning like a list of widgets, but now you're actually rendering like a page for widgets? How might the controller response be different? Yeah. So contrasting it to like a traditional HTML response, you're going to send down, so like say it's the index for users. So it's this list of users, but it's going to be rendered inside of an HTML document. So you've got all of the the surrounding HTML. Instead, with an inertia response, the actual structure of the data is the component. So it's a JSON object that has as one key component, and that says render the pages slash user list. And that's just the string name of the client-side component that you want to work with. And then another key in that JSON object is data, and that is the data structure. That's an object itself. It might have users, which is then a list of user objects with all of the attributes that they want. And then you may also have some other information, like say you want to say the message count, which is meant to be up in the header, and there's a little you know bubble icon over the message thing that says three new messages. So you may also send down that piece of data along with the users list. And so that JSON structure is what you send to the client each time. And the first time you render the app, it'll actually serialize it into an HTML document to sort of boot up the whole application. But then from there, the application is running on the client side with a little inertia wrapper, maintaining all of the little bit of necessary state between any page transitions or things like that. And then each new request is just that data object going back and forth. Okay, great. That's super helpful. That's interesting. Yeah, like your JSON structure now has the name of your component and then has the data that goes with it. So theoretically, I could change the name of my component, forget to update it in the controller, and I totally just broke it, right? Uh, Yeah, so you do have that coupling between the controller saying which component to render and then the component actually being on that side. You also have a data contract, essentially. And this is where I'm really interested in seeing if I can actually get closer to that GraphQL experience because the the nicety of the GraphQL schema is you can say, this is my query on the client side. And then the server can say, like, that's not a real query. What are you doing? Or anything like that. Whereas now the controller needs to provide the data in a certain shape and the component expects the data in a certain shape. But there's nothing actually enforcing that contract. So something like JSON schema or a GraphQL or something like that, I would want to feel confident in this as a growing pattern, like in a larger team that's lots of different pages and lots of people moving around and things like that. Ways to make sure that we're not breaking that interface. That's one of the rough edges that I'm trying to figure out how to just make as comfortable as possible. And I think coming back to the thing earlier, that little bit of latency that I was talking about, if you have an application that's often used on mobile and like iffy network conditions, then that can become a much bigger issue. Whereas a lot of other applications prioritize like, cool, we got it. We're doing everything client side and trying as hard as we can to save it to the back end. And then if they have like spotty Wi-Fi, they can pop up the little, hey, internet's not great. We haven't saved it. But it's two different ways to look at that. And so this is an option for what if we were to simplify things drastically with a little bit of caveat around performance. And frankly, I'm super intrigued by approaching things from that side as opposed to all of the efforts I've had to try and approach it from the other side. Yeah, all of that sounds super neat. Uh, the project that you're working on, the one where you're sort of like in the play space with this, is that something that you have that's public on your GitHub profile? It is not. I don't have anything um, public at this point, not because it needs to be, but it's one of those like, this is my private weekend hack thing that I want to feel comfortable just sort of messing around. So I've, I've kept it private for the longest time. I don't know. I don't need to by any means, but it's one of those like, I don't know, this is this is my journal place. 
I understand. I know I was putting you on the spot a little bit. I'm the same way when I'm like brand, brand new to something or like, yeah, just sort of a play space. It just feels to use the term like psychologically like safe space where Mm -hmm. like I know nobody else can see this and I can do whatever I want and I don't have to worry about anyone also looking at this. So I I totally understand for kind of wanting to keep it close to the chest and in the beginning. And then at some point when you're ready to share it, I was just curious how to selfish reasons so I could go and look at it if I wanted to. No, it's it's a good question, and I appreciate you keeping me honest on that. Frankly, I I think I end up on the wrong side of this all the time, but I'm I tend to be not protective, but I tend to not share as early as I maybe could. And part of my thinking is just like, oh, I don't know if these are good patterns. I don't necessarily want everyone copying them, so I don't want to put this out there. It's like, oh, look, here's an example of this thing because I'm not even sure it's a good example. I need to spend a bunch more time to get comfortable. But I think that last bit there that I said is the part where it falls down of I need to spend a bunch more time. I think I spend too much time trying to get to comfortable and I should probably share things more readily and earlier. But this is the way I approach the world. So I think it's it's a very hard thing to do to share that early with somebody. But yeah, I, I very much support the efforts. And like if you felt comfortable or I also will remind myself to do this to try to share earlier because I get so much value from other people when they just share mm-hmm. stuff with me. And I realize I don't put the same expectations on them that I think that people are going to put on me. So this idea of like you think you're not showing best patterns, but I know if you put it up, I'm not expecting you to show me best patterns. Like I'm not with this particular project. I know this is like a play space. So it's interesting how that works I understand the expectations we put on ourselves, but people wouldn't really put on us. But I feel you. But yeah, I think that's a good summary of my at least initial explorations with inertia. I'm super excited. I, I enjoy working on the application, this little toy app of mine, so much more now that it's not two distributed code bases. This all folded back into one Rails app, and that alone has just been fantastic. So I'm going to keep poking at this. We can probably keep talking in future weeks, but uh, yeah, we should probably wrap up. Yeah, I'm so excited that you shared uh, today, and I'm very excited to talk about this in future episodes. But yeah, on that note, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or a review in iTunes, as it really helps other people find the show. And if you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter, or I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.